Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your hosts, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 108 of Let's Get Haunted. Yeah, 108. Here we are. If you don't want to hear our intro and want to skip straight to the story, you can open the show notes right now and you will see the very first sentence in all caps says skip to this time to get to the story. You can go ahead and do that at any time to get right to the story. This intro in particular is going to be very haunted and I'd like to give a trigger warning because I'm going to discuss my childbirth story, which is uh childbirth guys if you're squeamish i would say you know it's childbirth right childbirth or if this is a trigger for you perhaps you've dealt with infertility or fertility issues perhaps you had a traumatic childbirth experience i would say probably just skip this one yeah if you're pregnant 100 skip that (laughs) no no no. if okay here's what i'm gonna say as someone who was pregnant and was a warrior through my pregnancy don't fucking listen to other pregnant people don't read any like trauma stories don't do any of that this is your story it's going to be different than everyone else's it's yours and you don't need any of that negativity in your life however um, great advice yeah this podcast just is a bunch of people who feed off of negativity and haunting so (laughs) i'm gonna give them the most fucked up version of my birth story i'll give like the really clean nice spiritual new wave versions to like my children when they're older and like other hippie people that um i want their respect i'll tell them that version <laughs> but this is for the realist okay no and i appreciate that because i do think a lot of traumatic experiences do end up getting sort of sanitized and i feel yeah. like that leads people to have unrealistic expectations of anything in life not just childbirth so i appreciate that you're about to tell us the real deal the the realist guys so stay tuned i would like to start out by shouting out our donors this episode before we get in too deep because Natalia has assured me that this is a crazy as fuck story. So I would love to give a big shout out to Daisy T, Vern A, Jessica W, Michael R, Nicole S, Maria O, and Linda B. And Today, I just randomly decided we're going to enter some more podcast awards, and I tweeted out and said if anybody would like to contribute to the amount we need, and I tweeted out the amount we need to enter two contests, um, I said, here's our Kofi account. Go ahead and send us some money if you'd like. And so I'd like to give a big shout out to the people who donated to that effort, which is Desi, Julissa D, Shane, Alyssa S, and Omar um thank you very very much if you would like to donate to our podcast award fund you can do so by going into the show notes and clicking on the ko-fi link that will be shared there we need about 200 more dollars to enter the last contest and i would like to thank gwendolyn l bethany k gentry b and gwendolyn l again gentry b and gwendolyn l are single-handedly doing this for us (laughs) and i'd like to give a big shout out if i didn't already say this to jessica w michael r and shane for making generous donations this episode thank you all so much and if you'd like to donate to our show you can do so by going to letsgethaunted.com and either purchasing some merch or sending us a haunted donation on there or like i said you can go to our ko-fi which will be linked in the show notes or you can venmo at natstron or at dogmomusa 
Yeah, or paypal.me slash natstrawn. I just wanted to add, if you guys make any Venmo payments to me or like Cash App or PayPal or any of that shit and it asks if this is a business transaction or this is just friends, say it's just friends because if you say it's a business transaction, they take like one point something percent of it. And I think we're all friends. So I feel like... That's what it needs to be. That's true. Also, I think it only helps you to put business transaction if you think you're being scammed. And I can't... If you're getting like a product. Yeah. Because then then it's insured. If I say, hey, I'm going to sell you this blanket. And you're like, okay, I bought the blanket. And then you never get the blanket. Or the blanket's like not a blanket. And it's actually... Broccoli. Yeah. Then you are protected. But you're just giving us money. Like you have no idea what we're going to do with it, right? (laughs) I feel like it's in your best interest to just give it and let it go and just be at peace. You know what? I just imagine someone hearing their name shouted out on an episode and then demanding a refund from PayPal because they're like, I did not like that episode. Oh, that's fair. Stern, but fair. (laughs) Harsh, but fair. Right. (laughs) Well, Natalia, I did something today. This is my personal haunting. I decided to go to the mall on my way here and try to find a one-year-old birthday present for Enzo. Oh my God, yes. I did not realize how many rules there are for toys for children. You know how they have the age rating? I don't like listen to that stuff. Okay you don't No. I was like stressing I was like yeah. looking around this toy store everything cool was like three and up and then there's no. like baby toys and he's not a baby you no know, he's, he's one he's a fucking monster you guys this baby is not like a baby he's wearing clothes that are meant for a two-year-old and he's not even one yet and his shoes are meant for like a three and a half year old he's an athletic child star He's a gigantic child. Like, you know that, like, the Michelin baby thing from Ghostbusters? Yeah, but he's not, but he's not fat. He's, like, svelte. No, he's, he's like coming like, at you with a javelin in a right. war. He's like a a war child. You know what's weird is that I think when I was pregnant, I was playing that Valhalla video game, and I was That's just why. yeah in my like warrior, you know, just Liam Neesoning Nick Cage my life. Yeah. yeah, it was the pandemic. Literally, LA was on fucking fire. You guys, this so is true. Shit was fucking going down. I also was dealing with the stalker situation, and I oh, was yeah yeah I was just like you know in warrior mode, and I, he picked up on that energy. I think so. And harnessed it. And now he's like a mini Hercules. Okay, so you guys, this has been like a super emotional day for me because it's the day before Enzo's birthday. And you're probably like, oh, that's so cute. He's one. You're like, oh my God, sentimental. No, no, no. If you've done a natural birth where you haven't had any pain medication, you will never fucking forget that day ever. I can't. I literally cannot even imagine. Yeah. I still have PTSD from it where sometimes just like thinking of it like gives me sort of like a panic. And I was feeling like that all day today because my stupid phone is like, look what happened a year ago. And it showed me my fucking birth video. And I was like watching my birth video. And then I was like, I should show this to Alyssa. Are you going to show me? Will you watch it if I show it? Yeah, I'll watch it. Okay. So it's eight minutes long because, okay. So long story short, if you guys want to hear my birth story, you let me know and I'll tell it to you guys. I just don't think anyone wants to hear it because it's pretty, I don't know. I don't, I just, 
I, I don't know. I think everyone wants to hear it, but I understand your trepidation because it is such like a personal experience you went through and such a traumatic and beautiful experience you went through. So if you want to tell it behind a paywall on Patreon, I support you. Yeah. Or if you want to tell it just on an episode, I support you. Okay. I kind of want to just like show you this, these, because I want to see your reaction. Oh Those of you who don't know, I did a home birth, meaning I like just had birth at my house and I had a midwife and I had a doula and I had had another midwife who was like a bruja she, that's that means like a witch and she literally was like seeing spirits and shit during my birth it was pretty fucking haunted and shit was fucking crazy nothing went the way that i thought it would go i was imagining birth to just be this transformative amazing experience where it's like you climb mount everest and it's like super fucking hard but like you get to the end and you're at the top of a mountain right you plant your flag you're like strong and you did it like overwhelming sense of accomplishment right and you're like you know at the end of the marathon like oh my god like you're just crying i got my medal yes no it's not like that i can only equate it to what i feel like war warfare was like you're <laughs> you just go through a battle fucking battling and you yeah. don't know when it's gonna end oh, and this um, is making me sweat my palms are getting so fucking sweaty i had what is called a shoulder dystocia it's super rare less than one percent of births that are unassisted have this thing and it's totally unpredictable there's nothing you can do to see whether or not it's going to happen you just have to wait for the birth to start before you can start doing it so it's basically where the baby's shoulders get stuck on your pubic bone. So oh they can't, God. you birth the head and then the rest of the body is no. supposed to come flying out because the head's the biggest part. Right. But when you have a shoulder dystocia, the head gets stuck. So you ah. birth the head and you're just stuck in the crowning no. position, which is the most painful part no. for a super fucking long time. I'm going to cry. Dude, it was fucking gnarly and the longer the baby is stuck there the more likely it is that they're going to have traumatic injuries that they may or may not recover from one being there's this nerve that runs from the baby's I think the neck to the shoulder and if it gets like overstretched they can be paralyzed oh my god or the lack of oxygen to their brain can cause them to be paralyzed or perhaps brain dead or just be born dead stillborn or die much later from things they suffered during this traumatic birth and and they quantify these births, these shoulder dystocias, by how long it lasts. So a shoulder dystocia is already a medical emergency. But I think at like either four and a half or five minutes, that's the longest that you're allowed to try to push the baby Just out. natural after yeah. when you have a shoulder dystocia. Right. Okay. After that, there can be several other maneuvers that are tried. One of them, which is like risky, is they push the baby back up the canal, no! back into your stomach, and no. then perform a C-section. No. That's what they fucking do in the hospital if you guys just heard me involuntarily (laughs) bang my hand against the wall that is what that noise was and then the second is is that they perform an episiotomy an episiotomy is where they cut the skin from your perineum to the like your vagina so Uh they would just basically cut your vagina yeah Yeah. larger to help pull the baby out but sometimes that doesn't happen either so in my case the way that Enzo came out his left hand was on the right side of his face so if you take your left hand and put it on the right cheek you see this like shape that your shoulder makes it's sort of like pointed Uh they can't do anything to unhook him because they can't get the hand to the other side of his face without breaking his collarbone or his shoulder so in the hospital sometimes what they'll do is they'll just break the baby's collarbone and pull them out but my midwives luckily were very skilled and they were really good under pressure and panic and my shoulder stoja was a little over four minutes so we were almost at that five minute mark 
where I would have to go to the hospital. So I'm fucking pushing this out. This has been the worst fucking day of my life. These contractions have been coming for almost 24 hours now. I was like at my fucking breaking point, pushing this fucking baby out. I'm putting everything into this shit, guys. And I fucking know my body and I know shit was wrong, even though I've never had a baby. They were like, push, push. And I was like, I'm fucking pushing. It's not fucking going anywhere, right? right? Like there's nowhere to go. I could feel it in my pelvis. Something was wrong. Oh I, I didn't know how to explain it because I've never given birth. So I don't know what it's supposed to feel like, but I felt like something was stuck and right. I kept reaching down and being like, it's stuck. He's stuck. It won't go anywhere. They, I think, already knew it was a shoulder dystocia, but didn't want to like freak you out, freak me out. So they were just like, okay, mama, just push, push, push. So at at four minutes, finally, four minutes and some change, my midwife does what is called applying like fundal pressure. I think it's called a Robertson maneuver or something like that. So they tried all kinds of stuff. Also, he had two nuchal cords. So he had a nuchal hand. His hand was on the side of his face and he also had the cord wrapped around his neck two two times. So when his head came out and it stuck there, his head's just like purple and full of blood his head's been stuck there right right? and that's why my labor was so challenging is because he was in the wrong position so he like couldn't come through the birth canal even before I was pushing some people have a labor where the baby is in like the right position or whatever and the labor goes by quickly and they push and the head comes out and they do like three pushes and the baby's out if your baby's like in a fucked up position or your pelvis is too small or a combination or the cords of those or the around. cords or the hands on the face or whatever, your labor can be a lot more challenging, a lot harder and suck a lot more. So I'm pushing, I'm pushing. And also what's happening is this thing they call the turtle head effect, which is where you push and the baby's head comes out a little bit, but then it gets sucked back in mm. because the shoulders can't come out. So right. you're pushing and the baby's coming out and then he's going back in. And I can hear this. It's like... Ah! coming in and out also his fucking head this bitch his head was so fucking big you guys (laughs) it was literally like 14 inches which is like in the 99th percentile so he was huge and his head was like a cone shape when it was coming out because Mm. they have to like morph to your birth birth canal canal. yeah and my birth canal was really small and he was really big so when I'm feeling down there in this stupor of like having been awake for such a long time and having been through so much pain I feel down there and I can feel they're like oh that's his hair that's his head but it doesn't feel like anything you've ever felt it feels like a wet rock Oh my because God. it's not the shape of a head. So they had to try a bunch of different maneuvers. I forget what the names of all of them are. One of them is like they put fingers in my butthole and like fingers on the other side of his shoulder and like try to like move him. At one point I had literally four people's hands inside of me and I'm fucking tearing at this point. Right. Like I suffered, I think second, almost third degree tears. My midwife's like, no, no, no. Th- these were not, not that bad of tears. But later in the hospital, they were like, oh, this is a big tear. So I don't know. Maybe the people at the hospital were being dramatic. Maybe the midwife is like you're fine chill out (laughs) I don't know because she sees natural birth all the time so she might have just been like this bitch couldn't handle it so I'm like tearing it sucks hurting then the baby comes out he doesn't breathe for four minutes no oh my god because he's just suffered this trauma right Right, and they put this limp lifeless baby on my stomach and they're trying to bring him back to life and they're also trying not to freak me out right even though they've just been freaked out because I asked them after this birth hey has that ever happened to you guys and they both got really quiet and sort of looked at each other didn't know what to say and one of them was like that happened to me 11 years ago and the other one who's been doing this for I think like 20 something years was like yeah that's only happened to me one time and it wasn't as long as yours they put this lifeless body on me and I'm thinking like oh my god my baby's fucking dead and I just kind of accept 
accepted it. Because I do this podcast, I believe in souls and I believe in reincarnation and all of that. I just wanted to like honor the fact that he had lived in my stomach for so long and had just even made it into this world. So I was just like sitting there with him and just and just like stroking him and telling him like, oh, baby, you know, this is such an amazing world. And sorry. I know I'm trying. I'm like trying to not cry right now. So I, I didn't know what to do. And, and my doula, I'm like, I don't know what to do, Lori. <laughs> I don't know what to do because there's a dead baby on my chest and and they're trying to bring him back to life. And, and I didn't know what to do. And uh, my doula says, calmly because it's her job and she's amazing talk to your baby bring his soul into this world talk to your baby i just couldn't think i i didn't know what to say the only things i could think of were just like all the people and animals that were in my life at that time so i was like oh and so i can't wait to introduce you to double down and um the donkey (laughs) and you're gonna meet archer the husky and you're gonna meet nala and you're and i even said you're gonna meet Alyssa, and you're gonna meet everyone from the podcast i was literally just saying everything that i could think of because i couldn't think of anything positive to say so i was just like naming shit in the house like i was looking around and i was like you're gonna sit on the couch and then as i'm praying as i'm saying all that stuff i hear my midwife say the fucking worst thing that you can hear at a home birth which is Lori, call 911. Oh my God. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I'm not being dramatic. The baby's fucking, this is not good. Luckily, the paramedics are only three minutes from my house. That's why I was a good candidate for a home birth because I have paramedics that live at the bottom of this hill that I lived at. And then I'm only a 10 minute drive to the hospital. As the baby is just like laying on my chest and I'm trying to bring him back to life and they're trying all these different maneuvers on him and stuff. I'm just like in this like literal haze. My midwife starts doing mouth to mouth on the baby. Now before this she was using this like it's not a machine but it's like a handheld pump. It has a mouthpiece on it with a pump on the end Mm -hmm. and she's using that to help the baby breathe and the baby's not coming anywhere and later she told me that the reason she was doing that is because legally they're supposed to use that right. So like as a midwife, especially operating in a place like California where everyone sues everyone for anything, there's so many rules and laws and regulations that are in place. Like even with the shoulder dystocia, like at this amount of time, like you have to call the ambulance. Like that's why at one minute afterwards of them trying to do resuscitation on him, they had to call 911. So she's using this machine to try to help him breathe and he's not breathing. And so she just tosses the machine to the side and she starts doing mouth to mouth, which isn't like legal like that's Uh not what you're supposed to do but she told me later that like she didn't care like she just wanted the baby to come to life and she told me as she was breathing to him she was praying to god like god please take whatever years left on my life and just give it to this baby wow like give whatever i have left to give to this this soul to this child and as she was doing the mouth to mouth and as she was saying that prayer enzo took a breath and finally after four and a half minutes woke up literally the moment he takes a breath the fucking paramedics walk in I'm like laying in this bed with a blown out vagina with fucking three women standing over me two of them are covered in my blood the baby's sack broke or whatever so he has meconium which is like the baby's shit like there's shit blood like everything all over me and these women and like it looks like a fucking murder scene right and there's like a barely breathing baby on my chest and then fucking five huge ass like six foot tall hot paramedic dudes walk in and like stand over me and I'm just like what the fuck like get the fuck out of here but at the same time I'm like so scared because I just went through this experience so they're like okay uh what's going on here like their energy level is not at the same 
Like we yeah. are in like crisis mode and they're in like, hey, like we got a call about a baby here. Like what's up? And they just see that everything's fine. Like there's a baby on my chest. Like I just gave birth. So they're like, what like what's happened here and my midwife is like trying to explain to them in medical terms like I'm a certified midwife we had a s forces I don't know she's explaining to them and they're just like uh I don't know what I'm assuming too they were probably pretty young right because it's like EMTs no it was from the firehouse oh. so some of them were older but I mean they were young in the sense that like they're men that had all their hair so I don't know how <laughs> so I decide that I'm gonna go to the hospital anyways because I'm like my placenta still hasn't come out after you give birth you're supposed to birth the placenta and in some cases like fucked up shit can happen where the placenta is still attached to the uterine wall so I know someone who that happened yes to. That I know some people who that happened to too so if someone tugs on it it might pull out your whole uterus and then you might hemorrhage and die yeah maybe my like fear factor is like up to 1000 at this point just to face off of what I've been through I don't even want to try to deliver the placenta at home also want to make sure that the baby's okay like I don't know if he has brain damage I don't know if he's gonna breathe what if he just you know goes back into some sort of shock or something I don't know what's happening so we go to the ambulance and they it's so stupid they brought two fucking ambulances one for Enzo and one's for me because like they didn't understand what the phone call was wait did you guys get separated in the ambulance or did they let him like they, sit with you they were so stupid they asked me what I want to do they were like do you want to take an, an ambulance separate from Enzo and I was like fuck no <laughs> no finally get in the ambulance they put Enzo on my chest and give him like oxygen and we're running to the hospital finally when we get to the hospital they like roll me into whatever room or whatever and I'm like half alive they're like okay we're gonna stitch you up and I'm just like god damn it 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 did rip didn't it and they're like yeah I'm looking at you you have some tears here nothing that we haven't seen before and it's like annoying because when you do the natural birth that's one of the benefits is that you're supposed to not tear because you can feel pushing where if you have an epidural you can't feel when you're tearing oh yeah I never thought about that before but yeah that makes sense yeah I just went through so much fucking pain basically like fuck my life basically and she's like stitching me up or whatever and then I still have to deliver the placenta so as they're stitching me up which is like not a very fun thing I feel the placenta start coming out of me I'm scared but at the same time I'm in the hospital now so like if I'm gonna die in the hospital that just means I was meant to die I guess placenta finally comes out and then this fucking bitch like comes out of nowhere and she like puts it in a plastic box and then like takes it away and I was like hey what are you doing yeah (laughs) I was like I'm going to eat that or bury it or do something like I just did this fucking horrible bitch ass natural birth from hell do not fucking take my right to that expensive piece of shit that was in my body right now right like that is gold to me and like I want to have my spiritual experience with it and if you try to take that away from me I'll fucking kill you right now right (laughs) she was like no you don't want to eat this it's like dirty it's contaminated there was meconium all over it she was like you know you can get an infection you can die and I was like you know that's all you have to say to me right now because I'm pretty scared of that so she takes the placenta away whatever and then I hear Enzo start to cry okay I guess everything's all right and then we're in the fucking hospital they like take us to a room and like it's like literally a parade of people coming in every three and a half minutes to like teach you something or check on the baby or be like hey like I know you're fucked up now like it's really sucks do you want to talk about it like literally they bring a psychologist in there wow that's actually kind of impressive though I feel like that should be offered to everyone who goes through childbirth so I don't know if it was because they think I had a traumatic birth that I was probably treated differently. Everyone that came in, instead of being like, hey, like I'm here to show you how to put a diaper on, they were like, hey, so 
I heard what happened and I just wanted to say I know when you have a home birth the last place you want to be is the hospital so like you, <laughs> you know you sound like Zoe Deschanel right now that's new girl that's how they they were all trying to be like quirky and like try to make it positive because in their mind they were like oh my god this is horrible right? right but I didn't know any better this is my first birth so like I didn't know it was horrible until later I went on Google and like read all this shit and realized that this is like literally what everyone's terrified of so I was just like, why are all these fucking people trying to act like I'm like a damaged person right now? Do you feel like if they had not acted like it was traumatic that it would have been better for your psyche or worse for your psyche? Would you would you have felt like you were being gaslit because it was such a traumatic experience and then to have people act normal around you? Like I felt gaslit by God, honestly. It's not even a joke. While I was going through the birth, I kept having to dig deeper and deeper inside of me. And I prepared for this. I read all of these encounters with like people who do natural birth and they all described it as like this energy going through your body and you become a warrior. Your body becomes the bridge between the souls that are in the netherworld and this plane and your heaven's gate is like opening up your hips and all this shit. And I was like fully ready to do some tribal fucking shit. Like when I was giving birth, guys, when I was pushing, there was like a sound bath going on. I decided to do this home birth because I felt called to experience my past lives through this birth like Mm. there was something in me that needed to do this so that I could connect with my past selves I don't know how else to explain it I really just felt like I was at the link in this chain of DNA I'm Natalia 5.0 and then my mom is like Natalia 4.0 and my grandmother is Natalia 3.0 and I really felt wow all of these women who have come before me have gone through this and we've all done this and I really felt like called to to feel what my ancestors had felt. I just wanted, I don't know why, I just wanted to know. Maybe it was like my obsession with like medieval shit. I don't know. (laughs) In some ways, I already felt like, fuck, this is so much harder than it needs to be. But I didn't know what to expect. And I thought I was just a bitch the whole time. I kept being like, where is my cervix at? Because you have to get to 10 centimeters to push. And it would feel like it was horrible. I couldn't go through any more of it. I was like, you know, begging for an epidural I was like I don't care if someone fucking take my life away from me like kill me and like cut the baby out like I can't go through this anymore it's too hard and she would reach down and feel my cervix and be like oh yeah you're at like a stretchy five six which is halfway through oh my god and I'm like there's no fucking way and when it came time to push actually my cervix was only at nine something and she was like hey so what we can do because you're exhausted you're telling me you need to go to the hospital is like I can either move your this like little inch or two inch of your cervix to the side with my fingers and we can push the baby out that way or we can take you to the hospital and you can finish there or we can wait to see if the rest of it's gonna open and I was like fuck no I can't wait get your hands in there do that my pelvis was already very small and she had to have her hands in there like two hands in my vagina like pushing the walls apart and like the midwife who was doing it was exhausted she was like sweating profusely because she's pushing this tiny space open with like all of her might anyways so here's the video Alyssa okay all right I'm very sweaty I feel like this is gonna make me never want to have a child I actually didn't want anyone to take a video and she just started while I was pushing and I was like I don't have the energy to tell you to stop all right guys Nat is about to push play on this eight minute long home birth video Okay, I see what you're talking about. So the head, because obviously like children's skulls are so soft, it's sort of triangular, pointy, because it's trying to come out. Sound off, guys. Two. Yes. Three. Four. Five. Six. Good Seven. Eight. Nine. Ten. Okay, blow it again. You got it. 
And if you feel the urge to push, go ahead and do it again. This is crazy. He's coming. Okay, he's coming out a little more. He's just going to sit there and stretch your tissue a little bit. Now it's reaching down, trying to feel how far out the head is. You are, you are way more fucking calm and serene than I would be in this scenario. This is, like, very impressive. I was just so happy for it to be over. Like, I just wanted to push this shit out and never do it again. Okay, now the midwife is putting, like, a little ultrasound thing up at the top of Nat's pelvis to feel for, I assume, a heartbeat. And we can hear it. I think right there okay. no, no. is where they realized that something was wrong when they didn't hear the heartbeat strong enough. And that's why they're like, okay, now it's time to go. And I think they know it's a shoulder dystocia. Yeah. Is that your blood or is that Enzo's blood? That's mine. Ooh, it's okay. It's starting to come out. It's starting to come out. I can see what you're talking about where this is the part that is literally the hardest. The crowning is the like largest part of the baby. You're not tearing, mama. You're stretching. Good, good. If, unless you have gone through childbirth, there's no way you could ever even imagine. E like, watching it, for me, I am, first of all, extremely impressed. But also, I have no concept of it, right? The head's out. The head's out, you guys. Crazy. This is fucking crazy. So the midwife is reaching down and kind of putting her fingers between the baby's neck and the cord. Enzo's head is totally out. His eyes are closed. He's purple. He's purple. Okay, I see the midwife maneuvering Enzo, trying to get his shoulder out. This is where I was pushing, and I was like, "There's, it's something's wrong. Like I can't do anymore." Yeah, Enzo's head is like limp. She's putting, the midwife is putting all of her everything into this. Ooh, they got him. He's out. He's out. Nat's rubbing him. He's slim. Then they stop the video when they're putting CPR mask over the baby's mouth. I'm going to edit all of that so that it's not that long because eight minutes is just too long to hear random struggling. You're not sure what it is. That was insane. That's not even like the part that I feel like stuck with me the most. The part that stuck with me a lot was just like him laying on my chest and these women trying to bring him back to life. But anyways, I really cannot describe to you guys <laughs> the emotions going through. Like I felt like I was watching some sort of movie where like a trauma victim comes into the ER and they're trying to like resuscitate them, right? Which I guess in a way, yeah, it's very similar. It was just a lot of like on the edge of your seat, like I don't know what's going to happen. Even though yeah. I, like you just told me the story, like in the moment watching that video, I'm like, when are they going to get him out? Why is he not out? Like when is, right. when is he going to breathe? Like that happened almost exactly a year ago because tomorrow's his birthday. It would have been tonight at around 10 p.m. or something wow. that I started feeling contractions. And then the next day at like 1030 is when he finally was out. You guys, we're close to 10 p.m. right now. So this is literally one year ago right now, essentially. It's just so fucking haunted. It was just really fucking intense. I'm so glad that I did it. I'm so scared to do it again. Not that the birth part was scary. It just fucking 
ripped my soul out of my body like I've never had to work that hard for anything Mm -hmm. and so much of it was mental which is like my worst thing like I feel like physically I could do a lot because I'm athletic but mentally I'm very weak like in cross country I would give up not because I couldn't run anymore but just the thought of how much further I had to go would be like psych yourself out type of thing yeah and in that situation you've gone through the most pain you've ever been in your life and it just keeps compounding so there's lots of people who don't make it to the transition phase which is where I think it's like the very end of labor where you're like eight to ten centimeters or something like that it's literally unbearable you can't talk you can't move you can't do anything and before that I was like just walking around I looked on my phone and I walked literally six miles that day because I was just trying to walk through these contractions Uh, I don't want to scare anyone away from birth I just want to say that I'm a pussy that's what it was no I was scarred from this because you are not a pussy (laughs) that literally that whatever I just watched was you literally like you weren't even there anymore and then all of a sudden you were there again I don't even know how to describe it it was you know what maybe it's cheesy it's like a death and a rebirth yeah that was very very crazy like I I literally cannot think of another synonym to describe it like there are no words insane insanity well that is the perfect segue into my story that I have today warrior shit like just crazy fucking tapping into the other side I also just want to say I feel very privileged to have seen that video I really really appreciate you entrusting me with this information I'm not being sarcastic this is I am like very appreciative and I'm very honored that you oh. mentioned my name to Enzo as well oh yeah I did it means a lot to me oh. and I have trouble expressing emotion so if I'm saying this then it, you know that it meant a lot to me oh yeah dude it was really fucking intense and- I yeah. And I'm also very, very grateful that you're still here, that Enzo's still here. You guys are very important to me. Oh, my God. We're both crying now. <laughs> you guys were both crying. This is so awkward. <laughs> Alyssa and I literally never cried to each other. Like, oh, this is so weird. We're going to save this intro yeah. before something like a portal opens up and we get sucked right. into it. And then we're going to hear another tale of battle. This show is a trigger warning. Yes. Okay, guys. Today's story is about warriors. Perseverance. It's a story about luck, dexterity, and above all, I think it's a story about chaos. So at LGH, we have spoken on many topics, but two of those topics that have stuck with us throughout this pod are the inspiring and heroic brave acts of Liam Neeson and Nick Cage. That's right. Allie, do you know what Liam Neesoning or Nick Caging is? I absolutely do. Okay, Liam Neesoning, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Taken, but... (laughs) Liam Neeson is the same character in pretty much every single film he's ever been in. If so it's not broke, don't fix if it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a national treasure, yeah. much like Nick Cage. <laughs> so Liam Neesoning is when something happens to you that's out of your control mm-hmm. and you fucking claw your way back from the depths of hell and make your own destiny. Yes. You fucking make it happen whatever it is that needs to happen you make it happen against all the odds now nick caging is where perhaps you have caused the issues (laughs) that you find yourself in but you know what you're gonna make the best of it and you're gonna use all of the chaos and just like batshit insanity that lives in your brain all the mania that you have stored in 
your soul and you're going to release it to get yourself out of that situation. So you can see they're related, but they're different. It's two different approaches to right. getting yourself out of a jam. I love your your explanation of those. I have written down a different explanation. I, I think I like yours better, but I'll read mine anyways. Liam Neesoning is where you have no leads, no information, no sources, you don't know where to look, and the odds are stacked against you, but you get shit done. Nicholas Caging is where you have several leads, all of the information. You're an expert on the source. Odds are in your favor and you know exactly where to look and you still get shit done. But today we are going to introduce a new way to get shit done. I present to you Amoy Kovunning. Have you ever heard of this legend Amoy Kovunin? Is this a place or a person? This is a person. Shit. This is hands down the most chaotic story I've ever heard in my life. And I just had to tell it to you guys. It also, I will say trigger warning. This story has fucking trigger warning all over it, guys. This is about warfare. So everything that goes with that. It's also about drug use. If you like birds, you're probably not going to like it. (laughs) So this story also paints stimulant use in a positive light, which makes me feel seen. (laughs) So here's our story. Amo... Koi Vunnen was born October 17th, 1917, which is honestly a great birthday. It's all odd numbers except a zero, which we all know is the coolest and most goth number of all. Plus, that birthday is 101717, which makes him a Libra. Wow. Allie, do you know what Libras are? Um, it's the lady in the sky holding the scales. Wow, how'd you know that? My mind only works in pictures. So according to timesofindia.com, people born under Libra sign are represented by the scales as a symbol, so they're well known for being fair and logical. Mm. Libras are strong individuals who can overcome any sort of miseries. They can easily move on in life no matter whatever is over them. Librans are also known to be extroverted, cozy, and friendly people. Librans, like the scale that symbolize their sign, are often concerned with attaining balance, harmony, peace, and justice in the world. With their vast stores of charm, intelligence, frankness, persuasion, and seamless connectivity, they are well equipped to do so. So those all seem like great traits, right? Yeah, that sounds like, honestly, kind of like the perfect hand of cards to be dealt. Like, you're very level-headed, you're very just. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a great friend, to be honest. You're balanced, Mm -hmm. extroverted. It sounds like a leader. They would be great leaders because they see things for as they are. They're very clear-headed, clear eyes, clear mind, clear heart. And they're just going to, like, look at the situation with no bias and be like, cool, this is what we're doing now. Yeah, I I would love a friend like that. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) So they have all these great traits, but at what cost? Their weaknesses are that they want to avoid conflict at any cost. Relatable. Yeah, which means that Librans put themselves last most of the time. Interesting. Their self-sacrificing nature can be great for their loved ones, but it often leaves them feeling burnt out and unappreciated. That toxic positivity can take a major toll on their self-confidence. People see them as sort of shy and meek or, um, you know, a little insecure, despite the fact that they probably have the best traits out of all of the Zodiac. (laughs) Interesting. If you are a Libra, I would love it if you could go to at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram, find the photo dump for this episode and comment whether you think this description fits you or not. I find like Zodiac information just so 
interesting. It's like a fun little thing, you know? I just it's like fun. to see who lines up with it, who doesn't. So it's go not check it fun out. for me. It's factual evidence <laughs> backed by scientific data. I do believe it's the truth of this universe. Nat has spoken. So Amo was a Libra and he was also born in 1917. Now, Allie, do you know what was happening in the world in 1917? I want to say World War One. That is actually perfectly correct. Luckily, there's a movie called 1917 that explains everything, but it's like super long. So I'm just going to give you <laughs> the spark notes. Basically, World War One and 1917 was at its climax. According to www.firstworldwar.com, the First World War spanned four years and involved many nation states. 1917 was the fourth year of the war. This year saw the adoption by the German High Command of the disastrous policy of unrestricted submarine warfare. Disastrous in that it brought about America's entry into the war within the space of a couple months, which ultimately led to Germany's downfall the following year. Meanwhile, the British launched a major offensive at Passchendaele in the autumn of 1917. The Passchendaele battle was a campaign in World War I fought by the Allies against the German Empire. Almost a hundred years ago, this battle had began on July 31st of 1917, and it rained almost every single day. You, you have like little holes and ditches in the ground, and you have people with fucking bayonets on their, on their rifles and stuff, and they're like basically going along these like little molehills, and the other side is throwing heavy artillery at them, so you're, you know, in this mud-covered water-filled ditch just with trench foot yeah with trench foot just waiting according to the data the allies sustained over 320,000 casualties while the germans were anywhere between 260,000 and 400,000 also in 1917 russia exited the war because they were having two revolutions going on mm. the first was in february and the second was in october so basically in 1917 the whole fucking world is just not having a good time and then here's this video which is sad for you to get in a sad mood with me too okay i already feel very haunted so this is only going to drag me deeper into the muck and mire of ghosts so now i'm looking at pictures of trench warfare it says in august it rained every day except three everything is mud there's just like everything's full of dirty water huge numbers of men and animals drowned in deadly swamps of mud and then there's uh, pictures of donkeys, horses pulling wagons, and they're just super deep in mud. Yeah, like up to their shoulders. We're seeing um, soldiers putting on gas masks in their in their trenches. Men suffered tremendous pain and temporary blindness as a result of gas attacks. Uh, it's just videos of like horrible, like young people in black and white that are suffering and receiving medical treatment. Some of them, like it looks like limbs have been blown off. Um, they're being like carted around on gurneys, photos of the ally soldiers who were only able to advance five miles, just like scattered along the battlefield. Yeah, dead. 
my point in showing you that is that warfare at that time, it's nothing like modern warfare. Like modern warfare is some guy in some, you know, underground base on a fucking computer, like pressing a button for a drone to go do something. Totally. This is hand to hand combat. And World War One was especially difficult because there's fucking people like on horses. There's like cavalry, right? Yeah. Like you've got fucking pirate hats on as part of your <laughs> uniform. They hadn't like it was like massive hand-to-hand combat at a scale that the world had never seen before and they just didn't have the technology yet that they would have in world war ii to do this like mass fighting so it was just fucking nuts to me i think it really made you like a hard person like any of those soldiers like could give birth and be like okay let's have a cigarette you know yeah people were built different so that was the world that amo was born into I mean, human rights were like an LOL at this time. That was a fucking hard life. And Finland is this place that was in all of this. That's fucking already so hard to live in. Like, it's literally partially in the Arctic fucking circle, which is like. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Not that cool of a place to like try to live in. Right. And so the people who come out of Finland, in my opinion, and that whole part of the world, like I feel like people who live in cold places are just fucking, they're, like I said, built different, yeah. right? I recently shot that film that I was working on and the this uh, model that I used to play my alien in it was this like beautiful Icelandic model, which is right next to Finland. I loved her because she was just like, looked so alien-esque because she was just like perfectly symmetrical and just a really cool, you know how like Icelandic people look, they're just oh, like yeah. really beautiful. It was raining that day and it was freezing outside and, and I put her, cause it's like a stripper movie, right? So I put her in this like tiny micro bikini where she's like literally wearing like a thong with suspenders and a bikini top on and like stripper heels and she's walking in the rain looking fucking amazing by the way but it's so cold outside and I was like trying to wrap her up with towels and stuff in between the shooting and she was like no it's fine it's so cold in Iceland like don't worry about (laughs) it you know like I wake up and I go in the snow like she was just built different right so back to Amo Amo's born during World War One in Finland and it's cold and he has like really hard ups and downs. I'm assuming. I don't know because it's not that interesting. <laughs> he didn't publicize his ups and downs right. because he is apparently going to Liam Neeson or Nick Cage some shit. He's making his own way. So I'm just going to skip to get to the good part. Fast forward to 1944. He's hot, by the way. I don't know. I'd smash. So here's some <laughs> pictures. I could I could see you dating someone that looks like this. So Nat is showing me like he looks Finnish. Picture a Finnish man in your mind. That is who this man is. He's got kind of like a wild look in his eye, too. Oh, he 100 percent has crazy eyes. Yeah. Like he's just a very thin, um, pale, pale, like just kind of crazy looking guy. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that for us. Yeah. So Finland's position during World War II is really complicated because they're right next to the Soviet Union and the Soviets kept invading Finland. Finland even lost some territory to the Soviets, which they were obviously not vibing with. So Nat's showing me a map that you can go look at on at Let's Get Haunted on Mm -hmm. Instagram if you'd like to follow along. But it's showing, yeah, there's Finland. It's next to the Soviet Union. And there's a section that's like colored in to show you what 
the Soviet Union was taking. And it, it's right. a pretty sizable chunk. Next is a map that's showing during World War II the Nazi occupation. And in it, you can kind of see Finland is right next to Sweden, who was neutral, Norway, who was Nazi occupied. They're just like sandwiched between all these Nazi occupied countries. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like not the best place to be. You're like in a Nazi Soviet Union World War II sandwich, right? Yeah. So Sweden is so if you picture Norway, Sweden and Finland as three fingers, Sweden is going to be the middle finger. Um, <laughs> Norway, yeah, has a um, swastika on on this map. Finland has a swastika. And then underneath Sweden, you can see Germany. Is that Germany? What is uh, that? That's like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. So those are all Nazi. And then right next to that is Germany. Basically, they became Germany during World War II. So Germany, right? Yeah, yeah. So Finland's like in this position where they're kind of fucked because the Soviets are like coming towards them. The Nazis are coming towards them. And they're like, what the fuck are we going to do? I don't know exactly what they were thinking, but maybe they were like beefing more with the Soviets because they had like had like past like arguments with them over the yeah land. over territory yeah yeah Finland has been like staving off further Soviet invasion throughout the entire World War II they're like off and on fighting like constant patrolling over here like the Soviets are taking and then giving back and it's just like warfare right so they decide that they're going to pull an, an Uno reverse card on the Soviets and they ally with Germany to invade the Soviet Union so they're like oh you thought you oh. were gonna do this to us guess what we're gonna do that to you and then eventually Finland pulls another Uno reverse card and they start fighting with the allies against Germany so Finland's position was literally in this war like the definition of chaos yeah it's the definition of like um when you're in an argument with your friend and then your other friend that like is friends with both of you is like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. What she did was fucked up. And then that friend jumps to the other friend and right. is like, hey, did you hear what she said about you? Like right. she's she thinks that what you did to her was fucked up. Isn't that fucked up? And it's just like instigating. <laughs> right. Like Finland was just like for Finland. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that. Finnish soldier Amo Koivunen embodies all of that chaos. So buckle the fuck up. It's April of 1944 in Lapland, Finland. It's cold and snow blankets the ground. Temperatures in this region reach negative 30 degrees Celsius or negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit. On April 20th, 1944, the 27-year-old Finnish soldier, Amo, was assigned to ski patrol along with several other Finnish soldiers. Ali, have you ever seen ski patrol soldiers? It's giving me like reminiscent vibes of the Dyatlov Pass incident. I'm picturing in my head like people either in snowshoes or literal skis just, yeah, skiing around in the snow and the blizzards and like the blinding cold and the ice like dressed in their warmest clothes just patrolling a border, I would assume. Yeah, yeah. So it's pretty crazy. I'm going to show you some pictures of them and then I'm going to tell you basically what you're looking at. So there's three photos here of what um, ski patrol soldiers in Finland looked like during this time, if you want to describe it. Yes. So I am seeing um, the first picture Nat is showing me. And again, you can look at all of these on at Let's Get Haunted on Instagram. The first picture shows two guys on skis um, with guns as well. And they're dressed in all white. It's a black and white photo. So maybe I'm projecting here. But it's definitely like all one color, light colored. Um, 
it looks like Star Wars almost. And in the background, you can see all these Christmas trees covered in snow and it's just a total whiteout. Now, the second photo shows one guy in particular and he's using his little ski poles to like smush around in the snow. So he's actually tracking. He's so one of the things you can do because it's snowing and you're on ski patrol is you can find enemy tracks. Oh, so he's kind of trying to find them because they have like ways to cover their tracks. And I think he's like trying to figure out. Like, is this a track? Is it right. not a track? Okay. Like, is it an animal track? Is yeah. it the enemy track? Is it one of ours? Right. Um, the third picture is horrifying. So haunted. Oh, my God. So I am looking at just a bevy of people <laughs> on ski patrol. And now, not only are they wearing what looks like Tyvek chemical suits, <laughs> um, but they're also wearing these, like, black gloves, black pants, white poncho with a hood, that is tightly around a black gas mask. These look like that creepy fucking cryptid Le Loyal. Yeah, right? Exactly. It does look like that. And it's weird to me because I see that last image. They literally look like ghosts. Like if I saw that shit when I was out. Immediate death. Yeah, no. Like I, I, I surrender. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So Amos squad had skis attached to their feet and they'd literally ski while they're patrolling the area. Oh, and by the way, all of these people who are on ski patrol, not only are they on skis, they're also carrying all of their equipment that they need on them. So it's like they've got guns slung on them. They've got all of their things they need to survive, like provisions. Yes, provisions, military equipment, like guns, weapons, gas masks, maps, radios, little pot to boil water, to boil the snow in to make water. Because they're also fucking camping, which like camping is already so stressful. Imagine doing it somewhere where if you fuck it up, you die. No, I won't imagine it. I refuse. They also have really big gloves on um, so that their hands don't get frostbite. And they've got jackets and snow gear. Also those white camouflage poncho things, capey things, whatever. It helps them blend. Oh, obvious. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm stupid because I live in California, not in the snow. In my mind, I'm like, wow, this is like a really dramatic fucking white robe with a hood. Of course, they're wearing white. They're camouflaging in with the snow. As you said that, I was like, oh, duh. Right. Yeah. Sometimes, like, I get it. (laughs) So, like we talked about, the snow is interesting as a combat material, I guess, because it leaves traces. So you can find tracks of your enemy. You can see, oh, someone walked through here. Someone burned something here. There was a camp here because you can see the snow. And a lot of the snow was freshly fallen so they can easily see tracks and they also are easily making tracks themselves. The cons of freshly fallen snow is that I don't know if you've ever walked through like five feet of fresh fallen snow. Have you ever done that? It's soft, right? Isn't it like not packed down yet? Yeah. So depending on the snow... It, it can be like different consistency, but for the most part, as you step on it, it packs down, which takes a lot of energy because it's like you're moving through peanut butter or something, right? right? So one of the methods that they have to do to move around in these ski patrols is they kind of go in a line and the person in the front carves tracks. So they're doing most of the hard work. And then the people behind them are just following in those tracks and you sort of like switch off the lead man. Okay, so is that so they only leave one set of tracks? I actually believe that so that it's easier for them to move because Oh god, you. So have you you've never been skiing, right? No, never. Okay, so skiing through snow that hasn't been packed down 
like slows your skis down a mm. lot more and it's harder. So someone goes out in front and then everyone just follows their tracks so that they go Got faster it. and the person in the front will eventually get tired and like go to the back. It's way easier to go on tracks that have like snow that's already been tracked through. Okay, that's really like interesting. Groomed. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. At this time on this day, Amo and his comrades, they set up this camp in the forest. They're taking a small break. This burns a lot of calories to be skiing around with all of your equipment on you. So they're thawing out their hands on this tiny little fire they made. Maybe some of them are getting sleep. Some of them are staying watch. When you're patrolling, you're like making little camps places and moving around. They're melting some of that snow in pots to brew some tea, warm themselves up, have some water and also greasing their skis. It's now the second day of their three-day mission. They're behind Soviet lines. So they're doing sneaky stuff. So it's like the utmost concern that they not be spotted. Right. I would imagine that they're like super paranoid and everyone's nervous. And I don't know if they were scared, but I'm scared. So that's what I'm saying. If I'm they weren't scared, then I, they're Nick caging. If they are scared, but harnessing that fear, then they're Liam Neesoning. I mean, we have to think that Amo was a Libra and he wants to avoid conflict at all costs. So I don't know why he joined the army. Maybe it, because someone told him to. It and was, he was probably like, okay. compulsory. It was because there were drafts, right? Right. Globally. Right. He was going to be like, this is going to be more conflict if I don't join. Yeah. Right. I'm going to so have I'm... to like fake an illness or. It's a catch 22 because like he's going to have to do conflict by avoiding the draft or he's going to be conflicted by being literally at war. In a conflict. Yeah. yeah. What is he going to do? He's conflicted. Oh, he's, conflicted. he's already conflicted. He's so complicated. <laughs> so it's 10 a.m. on the morning of March 18th. The Finnish ski patrol was patrolling alongside another squad of fellow Finns who had also been on the move almost nonstop, so they're super tired. The Finnish ski patrols run into a Soviet patrol. As you can imagine, it's really sketch when you run into a Soviet patrol. It's like you, you, you I cannot, don't like it. I don't. I cannot think of anything scarier. Like your your whole purpose here is to do like recon, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to figure out what the enemy's doing and kind of keep a safe distance. They're wearing camouflage. And then all of a sudden, your cover's blown. Right. And at this time, because everyone's sort of wearing the same stuff to camouflage, at first they can't tell if it's another finish. Oh, wow. Or if it's like some of their own. Like, did some of our soldiers go out ahead of us? It's like that meme where it's a bunch of Spider-Mans pointing at each other. Yeah, yeah. So they're like dogs about to fight. Both of the squads are just staring at each other like in silence. And I mean, they had trained their entire careers for this moment, but... I don't think that they had ever actually expected it to come. Someone is just freaks out and starts shooting. Gunfire happens. Here are Amos own words about running into the Soviets from his memoir. Amos writes, I set a small fire with the guys and put some snow in my cooking pot. I was worried about this expedition. In the last evening, when we had crossed enemy ski tracks and skied for a while, we heard a shot. And when we were ascending on this field, an airplane flew over us. I was sure that we would have to leave soon. 
As I was adding wood to the fire and snow to the pot, I decided it would be wise to apply some grease on my skis. Just as the tea started to boil, my hunch came true. Two of our watchmen, about 400 meters away on the way we came, opened fire. Soon, the enemy responded, and as they were using explosive rounds, it felt like they were everywhere. Though the second lieutenant, Ryotkonen, ordered us to take battle positions, the hastiest of us started to flee towards west, and I too thought it would be our only way to rescue ourselves, as the way was still open. I went to take a look on the open hillside, hoping to see Nori and the boys. Instead, there was a full platoon of snow-suited skiers sliding down the hill. The Ivans! They were still too far for me to start shooting. I went on again to check on Ryotkinen, and they were already preparing full retreat. So I want to clarify, the Ivans are the Soviets. That makes sense, because I remember from our Phantom Cosmonaut episode, the fake cosmonaut that Russia launched into space was Ivan... Ivankison or something, Ivanerson. And remember when we were talking about how it's basically like, if if you name if we were to name a mannequin like John Johnson, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it's just like a super common name. <laughs> I returned to the outskirts of the plane, and urged a radio man to come along with me. Now there was even more crowd as another platoon was skiing to our flank, 200 to 300 meters west of us. Their obvious aim was to encircle us. They run into this patrol, and by run into, the the patrol is almost 300 meters, a little bit more away. So that's almost like a lap around a trap. I mean, it's far enough away that like you're like, okay, if I run, I might be able to outrun these people. Yeah. But not really, because you're in snow, they can follow your tracks. And then also it's close enough that like, maybe if they just fire randomly, it might hit you, I don't know. So he's like, oh, oh shit. Like some of their squad has already just tried to like run away. Cause they're like, okay, we can't just run straight into battle even though they were commanded to go to their battle positions. And then they, as they're fleeing away, they realize that they're basically encircled almost like on three sides by the Soviets. And they're starting to close in on them. So they're like, fuck. We can either be in the middle of what is getting a tighter and tighter circle where we're like outmend, obviously, or we can just try to go as fast as we can out through um, before the circle like closes in on us. So we're still going to have to go past them, but maybe, maybe we'll make it if we can just go fast enough. That's actually a great visual. Yeah. Just like a, a crazy large number of soldiers on skis racing towards this kind of tiny platoon that's just kind of going out on a scouting mission. And it sounds like they probably had to leave most of their supplies behind because they were caught by surprise. I mean, he says that like his tea kettle was boiling. He had Mm -hmm. a campfire going. And then, yeah, it's a split second decision. Totally. So they start doing this formation that I was talking about where there's one person out in front making the tracks going as fast as they can, usually the strongest guy. And then everyone else is kind of like following in behind him. It's really hard. They're going through fresh fallen snow. They're running for their lives. They're already exhausted. They've been going for two days almost. They had just stopped to rest and didn't even get to rest. And Amos starts falling behind. The squad is getting further and further ahead of him on the tracks and he is getting closer and closer to the Soviets behind him. And the Soviets have the upper hand here because they don't have to make tracks to follow. They're just following the tracks that these Finnish ski patrollers are making. Amo just thinks at this moment that he's going to die unless he can somehow outski the Soviets, which isn't likely. But luckily for Amo, 
Back in Finland, his entire squad had received a ration of a stimulant called Pervitin, and Amo had been the guy who was carrying the squad's entire ration. Allie, have you heard of Pervitin? Am I allowed to Google it? This is so fascinating to me. I love learning about old-timey stuff. Sure, you can Google it. I'll tell you what it is, but you can also Google it. Here's a picture. So Nat is showing me, it looks like, you know, those mini travel size Advil tubes? Yeah. And then you pop it open, you get it from the gas station, and it has maybe like 10 Advil in it. Um, that's what it looks like. It looks like a chapstick tube. It says pervi pervitin. So it's actually methamphetamine. Interesting. The German soldiers were dispensing these tablet containers out to their entire army. So because Finland was under Nazi occupation at this time, they also had the pervitin. Pervitin was like the earliest version of what crystal meth is. Oh, really? So he literally had crystal meth. And it's pretty crazy because this is how I found this story. So I was researching pervitin because one of the things that the Nazi army was doing in order to like strengthen their forces is they were giving everyone meth. And they had done all of these tests because remember the Nazis were doing those like crazy yeah, like, experiments human on experiments. twins. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They had given a bunch of soldiers meth and they were like, oh, our tests are coming back great. It makes them more heroic. They can stay up for a really long time into battle. They're more euphoric. I mean, like, you know how it is when you take some meth, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's like taking an Adderall or like, you know, ecstasy or something that's mixed with some sort of speed, like an upper or something like that. Not that we've ever done that, but. Um, I had an Adderall <laughs> prescription in college. Um, so it was legal. Right. And I will say. It depends. Yeah, it depends on how much you're taking for sure. But also we need to keep in mind that like Adderall, what we take, what we have access to in the U.S. in 2022 is not going to be anywhere near whatever the fuck experimental crystal right. meth in yeah. a tube that the Nazis were giving people to like be braver. Exactly. This drug was popularized in Germany by this Berlin based drug maker called Temmler Work. This German army physiologist named Otto Rank said that this methamphetamine was like this, this uh, basically like dream drug. He called it the ideal war drug. The Germans themselves called it Panzer Schokolade or tank chocolate. The Air Force gave these meth tablets to their flyers so that the pilots could stay awake for a really long time, and they sometimes called it pilot chocolate or pilot salt. And Hitler himself was even given IV injections of methamphetamine by his personal physician, Theodore Morrill. You know, it's so funny you bring that up because YouTube just recommended me a video that was like Hitler and during World War II on meth watching like the Olympics or something. And I watched it and he's literally rocking back and forth so fast. He's like, like chomping. His teeth are like chattering. He's like looking around. He looks insane. That's why World War II happened because the fucking everyone was on meth and they were just like, and thought they were invincible. Me. I'm yeah. fighting you. I'm Superman. You're Superman. Let's team up. Right. Let's kill them. No, they're killing us. You know what I mean? Look, crazy conspiracy occult shit starts to look real good when you're <laughs> high on something. Right. You're like, okay, I, we can definitely open up a portal to hell. Yeah. No problem <laughs> at all. Let's we can go. definitely go find the Vril in Antarctica. <laughs> Not an issue. Do I have a map? No. Do I have any information? No. I will absolutely Liam Neeson my way into the Vril lair. So this drug was like a miracle drug, right? So they started giving it to like literally everyone. 
as the testing continued, they started to realize that it had some potentially negative side effects. Oh, really? Right. So the come down was really, really bad, obviously. And they would say that the fighters who had taken the pill the day before were like essentially useless the next day because you don't eat, you don't sleep, but um, when you're high on whatever amphetamines. And so, yes, they're like overworking themselves and they're able to perform to like their max potential. But then the next couple days, like two or three days, the soldiers are like unable to do anything. Like they're way off, way worse than they had started off without the drug. They also became paranoid and would like start fights with their superiors, mm. which is not good in the military. No, you're supposed to like almost blindly listen to what your superior says. That's sort of the structure of having ranks, right? You can't just like disobey what your what the higher rank says that's not how it works exactly exactly oh and then the some of the soldiers that took these pills too had adverse side effects like they became very very violent and they started committing war crimes against civilians and they even attacked their own officers at times wow so then the germans were like okay this could be dangerous you know, we've opened Pandora's box like we gave them something that would make them stay awake so that they could do longer shifts and battle for longer. But now we're discovering that they are also literal animals. Right. And so they started rationing these out to the army and um, they wouldn't give them more than they needed. So in this particular instance, they had given this Finnish squad enough for 30 men for their amount of their squad. And they had entrusted it to Amo to hold so because they knew he wouldn't abuse it because he was kind of like timid and shy. He's a Libra. He's a Libra, right? He, he avoids conflict. So they were like, we'll give it to him to hold. Like we can trust that he's not gonna, you know, go off. Be and- a Leo about it. <laughs> <laughs> One interesting side note about this drug that we're talking about is that there was a surgeon who was named Ricard Sotama who in 1944 during this battle was conducting surgical operations on wounded soldiers high on this drug for nine days straight without any sleep because he was the only available surgeon and he saved tons of lives doing this obviously. That's haunted as shit. The only thing that was keeping him going during this time he said were these meth tablets and cigarettes. Wow. So this is what I mean by like sometimes it paints stimulant use in a positive light. So literally as luck would have it because Amos a Libra He had happened to be the guy who was carrying the entire ration of those pills for the entire ski patrol because he was super responsible and trustworthy. So he had been entrusted with those pills. So Amo has a ration of the pills large enough for his whole squad, which is over 30 men. He's trying to escape death. I'm trying to keep up with his squad, but he's not fast enough. He's like, oh, fuck, I'm literally going to die. And in like a moment of anxiety induced panic, he reaches into his pocket, fumbling around trying to get it, but he has these giant gloves on. Yeah. And he doesn't have time to take his gloves off. And if he takes them off and he loses one, he can't like go back for it. And then he's definitely gonna like lose fingers or something like that. So he needs his gloves on. So instead what he does is he just unscrews the cap and he can't like take enough for just him. He just throws it back like a shot and just dry swallows a bunch of them. So he, instead of taking, I don't know how many you're supposed to take, but let's say you're supposed to take one. He's literally swallowing however many fit inside that chapstick tube. Yeah, he took the entire squad's amount. Jeez. As soon as he takes the drugs, he immediately starts skiing much, much faster. He starts skiing so fast that he catches up with his squad and he's starting to feel great. Then he's skiing so fast that he overtakes the squad. He starts going in front of them and he's the guy who's making the tracks in front. 
And then he's going so fast, his squad is like, oh shit, let's like keep up the pace because he's making these tracks even faster. So this is good. Like now we can go even faster to get away because they're just trying to get as far as they can from these Russians. They have to figure out something. I don't know if they're going to like call in a plane somewhere to like do an airstrike. And then meanwhile, too, as they're skiing, they're like throwing landmines behind them and like trying to set up landmines so that the Russians who do come through will just get blown up. But it's hard because they're only like 300 meters away from them. Russians can see them setting up these landmines. Right. And they just go ski around them. Oh, shit. This is like giving me anxiety just talking about this. It's like fucking, you know that game Frogger where you're like trying not to hit the cars and then you end up hitting all the cars because you're just staring at the car. Yeah, you're trying to not hit the cars and then you get to the level where you're trying to like jump on the logs and avoid the <laughs> crocodiles. And yeah, it's just anxiety. And then he starts getting so fast that even his squad can't keep up with him. But he's just like, you know, on a one track thing. Like when you're running for your life to get away from the Soviets, you don't like wait for your squad to keep up. You're like, I'm fucking going as fast as I can. You guys follow my tracks meet me where I'm gonna go and you're also high on meth so I don't think you really care no you as one person have taken the amount of meth that would sustain 30 people because that's what you said right he had 30 people in his squad yes carrying all the meth so I don't even know that he could stop or slow down at that point the Russians kind of like see how much headway the Finnish soldiers are making and they're kind of like not gonna try to go as fast as them because in their mind they're like dude we're in the arctic circle like you're not gonna get away we're gonna follow your tracks we can see you're far enough in front of us that we we can see where you're throwing these landmines like we're not gonna waste our energy trying to get away because you're not gonna get away we have more people than you so like i like lull you know yeah and at this time now amo's vision starts to get a bit blurry and at first he's like Maybe his eyes are just getting like a little frozen. He's going really fast. Sometimes when it's really cold and it's snowy, like when you're skiing, your eyes will sort of get frozen and stuff goes like a little blurry, you get stiff. But he's like, who cares? You don't need eyes to ski, right? Like you just just, need skis. You just need meth and a heart. (laughs) Well said. And then he starts just going in and out of consciousness, what we would call rolling blackouts. But he knows that he has to get away. So he just, again, he keeps skiing. Who cares? You have meth. (laughs) This guy is crazy. He loses his consciousness completely, but he keeps skiing in a complete blackout state. And that is fucking hot to me. I don't know why. (laughs) It's like a complete fucking blackout, guys. He's continuing to cut through the snow. So he's like fucking sweating and he's like bulging. And I'm imagining him. He's like really hot, right? And it's like really cold. So he's steaming, literally. And as he's exhaling through the fucking mask, there's like warm air going up over him while he's tracking through the snow. And it's like a fucking hot, sexy steam engine choo-choo train. (laughs) Everyone, just, just imagine for a second like a sexy choo-choo train everyone let's stop for a second imagine it okay cool the squad eventually catches up with him but when they catch up with him there's something off with him right because they're like this guy is like usually really slow now he's really fast what's happened he's normally like very level-headed now he's got a wild look in his eye that's like almost feral yes they note that he was hallucinating he wasn't coherent he could barely speak The only thing that I can like really relate to that is like 
when someone asks me a question and I'm like in my hyper-focused ADHD brain and I like can't even respond to them because their question is literally so irrelevant to my current mission that it's gonna delay the execution of my task at hand by a quantifiable number that I can't even like take the time to think about because it's literally also delaying the execution of my task at hand to think about it. And that person asking the question doesn't understand because their brain is working slower than mine and I don't have the time to explain their ignorance to them. So I'm just gonna pretend I didn't hear them. Valid. So they're really concerned for his safety at this point. And they're like, you know what? We're going to take away your ammunition. Like, they take away <laughs> his guns. This is not a good thing. And a smart move, though. Right? And they're like, one of the things that happens when you, when you take too much of this drug is, like, you get really violent and crazy. Like, he might get paranoid and just start shooting at them. I don't know. Yeah, he might start hallucinating that there are Soviets chasing him. Yeah, you don't want someone high on meth hallucinating to have, like, a bunch of military-grade, like, ammunition and, and rifles. Correct. So he starts to have these rolling blackouts, and he keeps skiing, and the squad is, like, can't control him, you know? because he's he can't be tamed yeah he cannot be tamed at this time and when he wakes up he realizes that it's the next day so remember it was 10 a.m when they first encountered the soviets so it's been a long time amo discovers that he's crossed in this time 100 kilometers which is 62 miles He's also completely alone. The squad is nowhere to be found. He backtracks a little bit through the tracks and he doesn't see any signs of them. So he has no idea how far back they are. He knows that he is completely alone. He has no ammunition, no food. He needs to keep going because if the if the squad got overtaken, he might be by himself, right? Like it might just be him escaping the Russians and they can just keep following his tracks. So he still doesn't know what to do. And he's still really high on meth also. Yeah, <laughs> lest we forget. So he regains consciousness. He realizes he's still under the influence and it's negative 15 degrees Celsius, which is really fucking cold. He's lost. He has no idea where he is. In his memoir, he says that the next several days were a blur and he was on the move constantly. And during this time, he had a series of really vivid hallucinations. One of these hallucinations was that he thought he was speaking with friends back home and that they were like giving him directions and telling him what to do and, and just talking to him. He also thought that he had spent the night skiing towards what he thought was like a, a cabin lit up by light, but it turned out to just be the North Star on the horizon. Oh, wow. Also, this is the best one. He fought a wolverine that turned out to be a tree branch. <laughs> okay, but iconic. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because he fucking killed that wolverine. Yeah. And wolverines are crazy. Like, they're probably as chaotic as this man right now. <laughs> So it makes sense that he found one and he fought it to the death only to realize it was, it a, was tree a tree branch. branch. <laughs> he was able to drink water by melting snow and then he took pine needles and he boiled those in the water to make like a sort of soup to survive on, which is still not ideal. Like he's still starving that to death. That can't be more than a couple calories. Yeah. So then as he's like just skiing towards the direction that his camp is in, he thinks, cause he's lost. He finally sees his Finnish squad and he's like, oh, thank fuck. Like, I'm back. I'm just going to say sorry about, you know, whatever happened. Give me my gun back. Right. We're cool, right? Let's, let's move past it. Yeah, let's move past it. And relief washes over him and he's skiing up to them. And then as he gets closer, he realizes to his horror that the camp he approached is not the Finnish camp. And the soldiers are not his Finnish comrades, 
but it's a Soviet camp. And those are the same Soviet soldiers he escaped from days ago. Now, like I said, it's confusing to both sides whether someone's on your side or not because everyone's dressed essentially the same. Everyone's in white. I mean, you're in a whiteout environment of yes. snow. And he has started skiing up to them, so they see him. And at this time, he like he can't turn around because if he turns around, they're going to be like, oh, this is obviously someone yeah. who just like saw us and was like, oh shit, and turned around. So he kind of has to play it off. He just casually decides to just keep skiing towards them and pretend like he's one of them. Oh my God. He skis straight through the middle of their camp, just kind of like not saying anything to anyone, just like slowly like head down. They're all kind of like confused, like looking at him because they think like, oh, is this one of our guys? He just returned. What was he doing out there? Like, why isn't he looking at us? Like, why isn't he saying anything? <laughs> he looks like he's like been through it, you know? Yeah. Like, did he get lost in the mix up? And as they're looking at him, they're like, oh no this is not right like let's go investigate this amo writes of this situation of him being in the soviet camp pretending to be a soviet with them all just staring at him this is the type of confidence only meth can give you <laughs> he writes quote what a situation the ones in the middle of the camp the ones i mistook as krauts were laying in a lean-to shelter without snowsuits and when i skied by they would only move their winter boots a little to the side out of my way. They must have been in the same group that chased us on the road. So they are like, see him skiing through and, and sort of like move their boots out of the way because they think it's just one of their own. Right. Can I quickly say it was yes. Ivan Ivanovich. <laughs> I, it just came to me in my head right now. The name of the phantom cosmonaut that was a mannequin. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. It's an incredible name. I'll definitely name my next son that. Yeah, Absolutely. Eventually, the Soviets do realize that it's Amo, and they begin chasing him, which he calls, quote, the scariest race of my life. The first one wasn't the scariest? Well, I think the first one, he was like, didn't even care. He was like trying to set a world record. Yeah, yeah. Like he wasn't, he had no time to be scared, perhaps. And this one, he has no choice but to slowly ski towards the enemy. Well, I think it was so scary because in this case like before he was just in the fallen snow but in this case he now has to go over a frozen swamp and a snow-covered pine forest which is really really sketch when you're skiing because like trees especially with fallen snow have tree wells so if you misstep a little bit you can fall into basically like a pit of loose snow and suffocate i've never skied on a frozen swamp but i'm sure that can't be fun no that's <laughs> not top 10 list of, th of things to do he skis for an entire day and eventually he outskis the Soviets again, probably because he was in that pine forest, so they lost his track somewhere in there. And luckily, he skis into an abandoned cabin. He goes inside this abandoned cabin and he's like, okay, I need to warm myself up, so he starts a fire. But, you know, he's been awake for several days on meth and he's like sort of coming down and he's starting to get really tired. So he lights this fire in the middle of the cabin wooden floor and like the cabin just starts burning all around him. Oh and he's God. like, I'll deal with that later. This it is Nick Cage <laughs> and the Wicker Man. Yeah, he's like, I'll deal with this later. And he just like lays down and naps because he's like, I like am on the run here, right? Like yeah. I need this like little 20 minute power nap or whatever it is like 
burning cabin I'll deal with later. Right. Every time he felt the flames get too close to him, he would wake up and just move a little bit further away and go back to sleep. (laughs) And then he said, like, at the very end, like, right before the cabin just totally collapses on him, he's like, okay, now's a good time to go. And just gets up and gets out of the burning cabin. He stumbles on his second lucky thing, which is another abandoned camp. But this is an abandoned Nazi military camp. So he goes into this camp and he's like, oh, I've been saved. I'm going to find supplies. Like, what a fucking great lucky thing. But what he didn't know is that the Nazis had booby-trapped this camp so that anyone who tried to raid it would be fucked. As he's searching this camp for supplies, he steps on a landmine, which blows up most of his right foot just to pieces inside of his boot. And then in this, like my foot just got blown off i'm coming down off of meth like i just escaped from a burning cabin nap time episode (laughs) he stumbles into another nazi cabin and when he opens the door it explodes and it throws him back 30 feet into a ditch now after he like gets blown into this ditch he's like you know what i'm comfortable here this is it like i'm just gonna kind of chill he's like really really tired he's exhausted he's coming down off the meth which as we know, is not great times. And he thinks that he's going to die at this point, but he also just doesn't care. He's like, okay, like I am laying down now in a ditch. Like my right foot is soup inside my boot. Yeah. I just got blown back 50 feet, probably has a concussion. Totally. And like you, how many chances do you have to like live? You I was know? about to say, if, if this were made into a movie, no one would believe it was a true story. Right. This is insane. It's crazy. So he rests in this ditch for what he thinks is about a week, and he has no idea, right? And the temperatures get as low as negative 30 degrees Celsius. This fucking guy, who is just the luckiest motherfucker, only stays alive in this ditch because the landmine and the explosion that blew up set ablaze to, like, some of the camp and served to warm him up as, like, a fire while he was just, like, chilling in this ditch. Like, he had... A nice fire blazing. Oh, my God. So he uses the fire from the landmine and the explosion to keep him warm. But then he's, like, starting to feel a little bit better, right? Because he's like, oh, I got some sleep. You know, he's still high on the meth a little bit because he hasn't eaten anything, whatever. But he's also coming down. But he's also warm. I don't know. I've never come down off of that much meth, so I have no idea. I've never come down off of any amount of meth, guys. So he decides he, like needs to eat something he's super hungry he's like in a crazed state and he sees this bird this bird called a siberian jay do you want to describe this little bird oh it's so cute it looks like a tiny little songbird just like a white and gray little cute tiny songbird just like a little puff in the snow yeah just like a sweet little fella so he grabs that with his hand and then eats it raw like the feathers and all of it oh my god (laughs) this man has gone over the edge which is also hot to me considering just considering think about what he's been through you are a vegetarian i mean i just like his will like to survive i like that i like that he doesn't let death take him oh okay got it you know yeah i feel that like there's something scares about me about that. I think I have this like primitive urge to like eliminate weakness. 
And then from that primitive urge is also like, oh, this person is stronger than me. So therefore, like, I they have can to provide for me. I don't know. I don't want to like say that because I feel like it's red pilled to be like, oh, men provide for women. This is not about him being a man. This is about him being a fucking crazy ass bitch who just yeah. survived an explosion landmine and like used it as a fire, was in a burning building, was just like moving further away from the flames to like get a nap. He's literally a superhero. He's eventually found by a patrol of his own kind, the Finns, but there weren't enough of them to carry him back in his like super badly wounded state so they tell him hey we're gonna leave you here but we promise we're gonna come back with a rescue party and I have to wonder if he's just like they're not gonna tell anyone right like they're not coming back (laughs) yeah I'm too far gone right they're like no we're good to his surprise though the rescue party actually did come back for him and then they hauled him to a nearby field hospital and they like patched up his foot and all of that which i don't know how you patch up soup but uh, you know you know what maybe the like ice from how cold it was like froze the soup oh yeah so maybe so, it helped yeah him. it was like kind of in the shape of a foot and they were like <laughs> great let's wrap this up before it melts In the hospital, he realized that he had been missing for over two weeks and that he had skied 250 miles during that time with no food other than the little pine needles. And the bird. And the bird. Ripped its head off. They measured his heart rate and it was going 200 beats per minute. The average resting heart rate is around like 70, I want to say, for athletes, probably closer to 50. So that's like not great yeah your if your resting heart rate is 200 you probably either have a pre-existing condition that you already know about that you take medication for right so the fact that he's just on meth traipsing through the snow with a 200 beats per minute heart rate eating birds like this man he had also lost so much weight that he was now only 94 pounds i don't know how much he was before that but i'm assuming probably at least like 130 yeah that's not that's not great despite all of this of course amo survives the entire war and he goes on to have a family of his own and he lives to the age of 71 he died in 1989 wow His son, who's named Mika, told people, oh, my dad really didn't like to talk about the war with me. It's like not something that he uh, really spent a lot of time on, probably because he was traumatized and had PTSD from it. Absolutely. But because his son was like, hey, you really need to discuss what happened to you because I think people need to hear about it. Like your your legend needs to live on. And also we need to understand like the horrible things that we put each other through so that we don't repeat history again. Yeah. So he convinces him to write down some of his memoirs in 1978, and his father wrote down this experience for a competition in a magazine, Oh! and it took second place. And I'm like, what the fuck was first place? Yeah, what took first place? And was it someone who was on meth for three weeks instead of two? Because this is the most impressive story I've ever heard in my life. Right. I like can't imagine a story that's better than this one. If you would like, you can read his entire memoir. It's pretty amazing, and I highly suggest you guys read it. I'm putting a link to someone had translated the original story into English, but on this Reddit translation, there's a link to the original story if you would like to read it and finish. Amazing. I don't understand this guy. So apparently he is the only soldier known to have survived an overdose on meth behind the enemy lines. And he also survived late into his 70s after that. That's the most amazing part to me because 
Someone who was born in 1917, I don't know what the life expectancy would have been, but the life expectancy now for people is like late 70s, early. Actually, I think it's literally late 70s mm -hmm. in the U, like in the US in 2022. You can Google it. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think I read that. So the idea that someone born in 1917 who overdosed on meth, got his foot blown up, got a concussion being blown back into a ditch, survived by eating one bird and boiling pots of pine needles, laid inside a burning cabin, chilled inside of a ditch for a week, like skied 200 and something miles. Mm -hmm. The idea that that man would have lived to almost the average age of people now, like modern people now that don't have any of those things against them like that is insanely impressive absolutely haunted also i would not be surprised if this dude is like haunting the cemetery he was buried in it would be the perfect end right because he's already survived so many like outrageous things that were done to him and then to just like come back up as a ghost and just be like yeah even that couldn't kill me like i'm still here to some degree I just want to read briefly an excerpt from his memoir titled this portion in the burning cabin. It turned out to be some remote company owned lodge. The doors were open and I went inside. I found wood in the corner and set fire on the floor in the middle of the room. I was that disordered. I found a tin can from the shelf and melted some snow in it. I drank the hot water, put the can on my belt and lay down next to the fire. Gradually, the fire grew larger on the floor, and I moved alongside with it. Soon, the whole cabin was on fire, and I was just moving little by little <laughs> further from the fire. I couldn't get sleep. Finally, the cabin collapsed. When it burned down completely, I went to the sauna next door and set a fire in its furnace. I burned a couple sets of wood and probably sobered up a little as I realized to question how I didn't just burn myself alive yet. When the sauna was warmed up, I went to sleep on the benches, and when it got cold, I moved next to the furnace and stayed there long until the next day. I think I rested for one full day. Back to skiing. At first it went effortlessly, but when it came dark, I went completely crazy again. I guess I saw the North Star, but I thought it was a light coming from a cottage and kept going towards it. I tried to reach that star the whole night. In the morning, I found a ski track, and since I felt the track was going in the right direction, I followed it. At this stage, I noticed my fingers were solid hard, completely frozen. I managed to thaw them out by rubbing them with snow. I could barely continue. I was half conscious, and the biting cold, like always. Then I saw barbed wire obstacles and dugouts. It must have been a German guard post. Oh my dear, how good I felt. I only needed to go on for a short distance. There was a wide plowed road in front with about five centimeters of fresh snow on top of it. I tried to shout to the Germans, but no one responded. I took off my skis. It sure felt nice to walk for a change. <laughs> there was a small piece of barbed wire. Like, it's like knowing what's about to happen. Uh, yeah. There was a small piece of barbed wire fence as a gate. Just open the gate, I said out loud. I had learned to speak to myself along the journey. I had taken about 10, 20 steps when a mine set off right under my left foot. Luckily, I fell down away from the road, which was mined, waist deep in the snow. I had come across a mine fortification abandoned by the Germans. Foot was a goner. I began to inspect my foot that looked extremely nasty. Bones were pointing out to different directions and muscles looked like they were grated. I blamed myself for being reckless. 
but I made a decision to crawl into the nearest dugouts and the we- since the weather felt feisty cold and I feared to freeze to death. The dugout was about 100 meters away. I don't know how long it took to crawl before I was in front of the door. The door opened from the right, and I had a ski pole in my left hand. I fiercely pulled the door open with my right hand. After it had opened about 10 centimeters, a huge flash followed. The brightness was beyond description. The whole world seemed to shatter. I woke up and found myself about 30 meters away from the dugout, meter deep in the snow. I still have the ski pole in my left hand. In my right hand, I have the door handle attached to one door panel. On the side of me, there was an empty sugar sack. I can't tell how long I remained unconscious. I began to assess the situation. My eyes hurt, especially the left one. I felt a strange rustle in my head. Back of my pants was missing, and only some strips were left of my left shoe. I ripped the front side of my undershirt and banded my foot. On top, I put my right sock. My travel was at the end. The only option was to make waiting as bearable as possible. I made a fire between my knees, a small kind of fire. I carved small splinters off a detached panel and took some snow from the hole I was in. Otherwise, the whole surrounding was stained with gravel and dirt. Later, the Germans told there was a 13.4 kilogram charge in the dugout. I melted some snow in my can and I cursed myself. How stupid I had been. Now there was no chance. Here laid Amo. Feast to the crows. There wasn't even the slightest of hope, and so did the Finnish long-range ranger cry. I cried so loud that an echo from the fields responded. But it helped. It broke some barrier that was built inside of me. Slowly, I got my water to boil. It was some good water. I doubt never has water tasted this good. A Siberian jay flew by to have a look and wonder... They say that the Siberian jay is the holy bird of Lapland. Others say it's a guy's friend. I felt cold sitting on the ground, so I put the rest of the wooden panels under me. I ripped open the sugar sack and used it as a blanket. I fell asleep immediately. Now I saw probably the best dream so far. I was flown to the hospital in Loima, and the nurses familiar to me brought my food. I ate and ate. I woke up to my horribly sore eyes. I could sleep only in short intervals, and eyes kept on hurting. It became dark. I woke up many times during the night, and every time I got food in my dreams. It felt ever more like torture to wake up and realize that I'm still in the same trench. The night was long. Finally, it became bright, but it didn't help me much. I was so weak that I couldn't keep my eyes open. I lost track of the days and night. I only dreamed of being taken away from this disgusting hole and served food. Like, his survival is so rooted in him not giving up like even as he's sleeping his body is like oh we're gonna pretend you're in a hospital getting taken care of you know oh he sees the siberian jay which is like this great symbol of lapland and it's supposed to be the spiritual creature like some people say it's like literally like a guardian angel like a spirit sent to you He he keeps seeing the positive he's like oh this cabin's on fire now All the better to warm me. Like, I'm going to make a sauna out of this. Oh, I just got blown up, like, to bits in this ditch. Great place to make a little fire for myself, you know? Like, he he just seems to not get stressed out. And I feel like that's probably why he lived so long. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that if he didn't have this 
positive mindset in the face of adversity, it probably would have been so overwhelming. He wouldn't have been able to do anything except just sit there and freeze to death and bleed out from his foot. Yeah. So the theories we're going to talk about today are controversial, obviously, because they're fun. The first theory I want to talk about is that he was a Libra. So perhaps (laughs) that his like horoscope guided him on this mission and gave him what he needed to succeed. Who's to say? Who's to say? The second is that perhaps those hallucinations that he was having weren't hallucinations at all. Perhaps those were spirits of his friends calling to him, perhaps guardian angels. And even though he's like hallucinating on this drug, I feel like maybe the North Star really did guide him. Maybe it really was like a spirit, you know, an angel. It's interesting. I mean, it's pretty amazing how so many different events had to line up just perfectly in order for him to get home. Right. If one of those things just had gone wrong, he he would have died out there. Yeah. Like, like not to say that shit went right. Shit went very wrong. But like right. every time something went wrong, like the universe would send him something else that would like keep him going. Yeah. It's so crazy. And I just think of like the craziest part is him approaching the the soviet camp and being like oh fuck yeah like let me just look down no eye contact real casual like i can do this this is like you know when when we were younger we would go to raves and stuff like that or we would go to like concerts and i would always like sneak into the vip or like something crazy would happen and like for some reason like I like I didn't care about anything because I was drunk like you yeah crazy <laughs> shit happens when you're drunk and like you just live to tell the yeah tales. I think if he hadn't been on that much meth there's no way he would have survived because when you're in your right state of mind the gravity of a situation sets in right yeah and as someone who's super logical like he was like super seeing things for as they are I feel like he just would have given up Mm -hmm. if it weren't for the insane amount of meth that he ingested enough for 30 men and somehow lived like meth is good (sighs) you know I'm taking that sound bite I'm gonna um send it to every single employer of yours and (laughs) it was a question though question mark meth is good meth is good um I mean, in this case, I really don't think he would have survived without it. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Also, though, I like as I'm looking it up, like, yes, it's meth. First of all, it definitely says methamphetamine. But it says in some countries they still use it to treat ADHD. Methamphetamine is like methamphetamine. But then when you take Adderall, it's like amphetamine salts. So it's literally just meth with like one molecule that's not on it. Yeah. It says it's also used to treat narcolepsy. Yeah, I know when I was researching the drug, because I was really interested in, like, how the whole world was taking meth and it was fine, they said that, like, oh, after it had started having negative side effects, they kind of, like, tapered it off in the military use, but then they started using it in America as a diet pill. And, of like, course. They, and they knew it had all of these, like, really, really bad, dangerous side effects from its use in Germany during the war, but it, like, had been 10 years later, and they were like, oh, we discovered this new diet pill. Fantastic. That's like, I was reading a tweet the other day that was like, did anyone else's, like, childhood consist of them eating Special K and drinking Slim Fast because their mom did? And it's like, yes. Yeah. If you grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, yes, that was, like, normal. And I was Special K was good, though. I was like, hell yeah. And I remember, like, in college... like a doctor gave me pills 
if I to, that were like optional, like, oh, do you you want to lose like a, a couple pounds? And I was like, yeah. Oh, okay. Here's this what? like fucking weird. It was this weird pill where like if you ate the wrong thing, like if you ate something that was too fatty or that was too like sugary, you would literally shit your pants uh, oil. What? It was like a fat inhibitor I, or something? Yeah, I don't remember what it was, but it was like supposed to train you to like not eat bad foods that are bad for you. But I'm thinking about it and I'm like, I was like 18 right. and some doctor was just like giving me diet pills. That's like, crazy. American culture is very bizarre when it comes to diet pills. Yeah, yeah. Well, because we just don't have a healthy relationship with food at all. Like I think that like the American diet is not even like it's so bad you know yeah I think we also like don't have a healthy view of like what a normal body looks like either especially in the early 2000s early 2000s was like peak like anorexic person on the cover of Vogue you know yeah I feel like we're getting a little bit better about that about showing all kinds of body types like underweight overweight uh like in the middle I feel like now we're getting better about representation but at the time I remember like Christina Aguilera in her dirty music video mm-hmm. that bitch was skinny as fuck yeah they were all like skinny skinny yeah. skinny what's crazy too is like uh, you know being a kid picking up Teen Vogue or whatever and seeing like Mary Kate and Ashley on the cover yeah, who were like skinny. open about their eating disorders later we didn't know that they were using photoshop or any of that either so like like I would like pick up a magazine and see Kate Moss and stuff and be like wow this girl's really really skinny and not know that they're like photoshopping her eyes to look less sunken in that they're like fixing her skin tone that they're like making her look healthy where now I feel like the youth understands photoshop because we all have filters on our phone we all have like access to things like facetune or like you know photoshop things like that like we know what's possible of just like messing with photos. So I think it's really easy now to tell when someone makes their eyes bigger or makes their lips look bigger in a photo or makes their, you know, like gives themselves whatever it is that they're doing or like moves, like warp some of the background to like make themselves look a a certain way where back then we didn't know. I was just like, oh my gosh, why are some people born with like inhuman proportions? Exactly. I wish I could be born with inhuman proportions. Totally. Yeah, we just had no idea. So I think, you know, to answer your question, meth good? Um, (laughs) I would say if you're in a life or death situation and you happen to have meth on you and it's like 90% sure you're going to die anyway, take that meth and maybe that'll like push you over the edge of what a human is capable of and like get you out of that jam. Yeah, if you're doing an independent podcast and you're on like three hours of sleep, (laughs) but like you really need that award, like you got to do some meth, guys. Look, (laughs) we're not ruling it out. We might be ruling it in. Hey, I would literally go on like a three day long treasure hunt on meth if it meant like finding gold. (laughs) Think about it. I would. Maybe the meth is like the portal. And it opens you up to, like, the paranormal. Like, it helps you to see the future. I don't know. I mean, who's to say? (laughs) Who is to say? I am not a scientist. 
how fucking tripped out would someone on meth get if you're like oh yeah actually did you know that like they proved that meth just opens up a portal and like everything that's happening is really happening to you yeah the few (laughs) people i have seen on like actual meth and not like something cut with meth but like actual meth Mm -hmm. i feel like you could say pretty much anything to them and i don't know that it would even register is meth good i think if you're in a survival situation i mean at that point like nothing can hurt you but if you're just like living day to day, my philosophy is like, why think, give myself more problems? Right. Just if I have the choice. Yeah. I understand like addiction is not a choice when you're in it. It's not like you can just stop. Some people do. And that's fucking crazy. Um, but I think most people are not able to stop. So I guess my like simplistic advice would be that my philosophy is like, why give myself more problems? I'm just not going to drink or I'm just not, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm just not even going to go down that road. <gasps> don't even, don't even test it. Don't even figure out which kind of person you are. We've all got too many personal hauntings going on. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, that's my story. Well, that was incredible. Thank you so much. I had never heard that before. That is crazy as shit. I can't believe that guy survived. Kudos to him. So if Nick Caging is like you have possibly put yourself in this predicament, but you're going to get out and Liam Neeson is like you did not put yourself in this predicament and the odds are stacked against you, but you're going to get out. What would Amo? I was thinking be? about that as you were telling the story. I do feel like he's it's on the Nick Cage. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> I do feel like he's on the Nick Cage spectrum for sure. Right. Like maybe a little bit of Liam mixed in there because there were some things that happened out of his control. But for some reason, I feel like most of this was like, you know, I don't know. I feel like some of it was like self-sabotage. Whether it was intentional or not, I don't know. But look, Nick Cage is so chaotic that is he intentionally <laughs> putting himself into debt and buying out a crazy tombstone in New Orleans? Right. Or does he just find himself in that situation through his bad actions? Right. Is it because his Zodiac sign? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. I just tell you guys the facts. You heard it here first. But my final word is he was Nick Caging. Let, you know what? This is interesting. I think we should take a poll. You guys, if you are listening to this, haunties, and you want to weigh on weigh in on whether this was a Nick Cage moment or a Liam Neeson moment, please go to at Let's Get Haunted. Find the photo dump for this episode and let us know. And we'll like tally it up and see what the final word is. Yeah, let's do our sign off. BRB, gotta go cut a piece of a sugar sack off and tie it around my soup foot. <laughs> Bye. Bye.